Good morning, church. Please turn in your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 2. The prophecy of Habakkuk, it's one of the last books of the Old Testament, last, maybe number 5 from the end. To kick off our Multiply initiative this year, I want to preach on a topic that I hope will renew your zeal for mission. And my hope and my intent is that it will renew your zeal not primarily for foreign missions, though that's important and I'm sure that'll be some of the after or overflow of this, but I really want to renew your zeal for your mission. The mission God has you on right where you live and you work and you study and you pray and play. So I want to preach on glory today, on the glory of the Lord. To get us there, I'll begin here. I'm sure you've heard of storm chasers before. Storm chasers, these are the um, the people who uh, you know hear about a, a class four tornado tearing through a midwestern town at 180 miles an hour, and these are the kind of people that think it would be a really good idea to get in a car and chase that tornado, so that we can see it and we can study it. Why would they do that? Why, besides being crazy, why would they do that? The reason is they want to see something spectacular. They want to see something amazing and they want to be amazed. Now, I don't think we have any storm chasers in our church, though some of you with little kids probably feel like you are a storm chaser, going after that little tornado tearing through your home. But all of us here are glory chasers. We are stirred by the spectacular, and we are driven by glory. I mean, think about it. Think about what pushes your elation button. Think about what sets your heart racing. It's, it's your favorite team winning the game. Um, sorry to all you Browns fans from last night. You know, this is... <laughs> imagine if they did win, right? It's, about, it's reading about a blind man climbing Mount Everest. incredible it's watching a movie of a soldier's heroic efforts it's learning that beethoven would sit down and improvise pieces on the piano that people swore were better than anything he ever composed or you hear the story maybe again of william wallace or william wilberforce i mean prevailing over parliament to end the slave trade it's these kind of comeback stories, these valiant deeds, these sacrificial endurance that people have, the extraordinary gifts, glory like that grabs us. And more than that, glory stirs us. It arouses something in our soul. Glory calls us to do something that matters, to seek something greater. And this is not a bug in our design. This is a feature. God made this world. God made the cosmos. God made the world to display His glory. John Calvin said the world was a theater for God's glory. 
It's a theater for the glory of God. The playbill is always the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God. He made this world to display His glory, and He made us to see it, to savor it, and to show it. So God made us for to know His glory, to love it, and to show it. This is why we are all glory chasers. And it's ultimately God's glory we are meant to chase after. And we're thinking about this because this is the aim of mission. It's the glory of God. And you can't talk about the glory of God and mission without quoting John Piper. So this is how John Piper would say it. Mission, or maybe I should do Piper, mission, can't get that hoarse voice, mission flows out of a passion for the supremacy of God. Mission flows, study the Bible, pull all the texts together, what are you going to see down on the grand ultimate level? Mission flows out of a passion for the supremacy of God, a passion for the glory of God. This is all over Scripture, but we're going to devote ourselves to Habakkuk 2.14 today, a verse that declares this truth, and it's a verse about the end of our mission. This is, this is what mission accomplished looks like. And so this is what the aim of our life should look like. I invite you to look with me at this one verse, Habakkuk 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Whatever else God has for you in life, This is crystal clear. You exist to fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. This is the great aim of your life. This is your mission. This is my mission. This is our mission as a church. And when all is said and done, on that last day, this is what mission accomplished is going to look like. It's the whole earth filled to the very top, filled all the way up, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So if you go, you know, if you travel out to the Atlantic Ocean right now, and you go two miles down, go to the Atlantic Ocean, dive two miles down, how wet is it down there? Pretty wet, right? That'll be the easiest question I ask you today, okay? That's your heads up. So... You go out to the Atlantic Ocean, two miles down, how wet is it? Pretty wet. And that's how covered with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord, Akron, Ohio is going to be one day. And the place where you live, and the place where you work, and the place where you go to school, and the places you've traveled to, and the places we send missionaries to, and the places missionaries have never yet been to, but one day will, all of it will be absolutely covered in the glory of the Lord. 
And your part in the mission, your aim in life, because you know what they say, if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. God doesn't want you to live like that. Your aim in life, your great aim, your one great and glorious aim that governs all the rest of the aims in your life. You could say, one aim to rule them all. And it's this, to do what you can to fill this earth with as much of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as you can. That's your aim. That's your mission. And that's what we want to unpack today. So, we're going to begin with the Lord Himself. This passage calls us to fill the earth with the the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But, good place to ask the question, who is the Lord? Point one, who is the Lord? I wonder how you would answer this question. If you could... You know, if we had time for you to just, you know, if we could go around and just say, okay, what Bible verse would you, what passage would you turn to to tell us who the Lord is? This one whose glory we want to see fill the earth. Who is, so I'd love to hear what you have to say, um, but I have the mic today, so here's where I'd go. Here's where, here's where I go. Each time the word Lord is written in all capital letters, like it is in your Bible, if you look at it right now, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This refers to the personal name of God. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh, which comes from the word. It's built on the word or the phrase, I am. Yahweh, built on I am. And this is a kind of hyperlink in your Bible, kind of hyperlink to what I believe is probably the most fundamental statement in Scripture in answering who God is. And it's Exodus 3, verse 14. All right, so you probably remember the situation there. Now, back in Exodus 3, God has called Moses to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt. And Moses responds in Exodus 3.11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? And God patiently answers in verse 12, I will be with you. One of the great promises repeated over and over and over and over again in Scripture. I will be with you. But then Moses continues. He says, okay, but... Verse 13, if I, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God answers him in verse 14, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. All right, so what is God's name? I am. I am who I am. All right, now, what does that mean? 
What, right? what does that mean? See how the ocean question was a lot easier? <laughs> Two miles down, it's wet. Yeah. What does I am mean? Why did God identify himself as I am who I am? I absolutely am. You want to know who I am? I am. Try and wrap your brain around this. That God is. He just is. It's it's staggering if you can think about it and what it means and what it implies. And so I want to linger here for a minute, and I want to linger here not just to explain it to you, not just to give you information, but because I believe until God becomes dominant in our thinking and in our feeling, until God becomes that blazing sun at the center of the solar system of our daily lives, until God becomes the Mount Everest and all the foothills of our concerns and cares in this world, listen, until until God rests on the souls of the saints of Akron and on the churches in America with 10,000 times more weight than all the political concerns and the cultural concerns, until we can talk about the glory of God like that, Everything else is just religious babble. Babble is just empty words. Glory of God. What's that mean? I don't know. Glory of which God? The Lord. Yahweh. I am. What's that mean? I don't know. Then what are you doing? What are you living for? What does it matter? He's revealed himself. Know your God. And so, listen, here's part of my burden. You know what Akron doesn't need? Diet Christianity. It doesn't need Christianity light, which I take to be five steps to a better life and how to be happy in your marriage only and, and all the flat, horizontal things of Christianity. What Akron needs is God. And to be stunned by God. And so it's, it's something when God says to Moses, or Moses says to him, who's sending me? And God chooses to reveal himself. Tell them, I am sent you. So, I've got eight things I think this means. And so, this is eight sub-points to point one, just so you're following along. They're very short, very deep, very short, very weighty. Uh, and I, only, I thought of one of them this morning, so you've only got seven on the overhead. Um, so, let's plow through them. Number one, that God is who He is, that God is who He is, means... He never had a beginning. He never had. Now that is staggering. Right? Like we talk about this as a family sometimes, and it gives us the heebie-jeebies to think about God never having a start, never having a beginning. How is that possible? God is. 
That's how it's possible, because He is the I Am. He's not us. He's not like us. He's God. Every kid at some point is going to ask, where did God come from? And every parent is going to have to say, God came from no. Nobody made God. He just has always been. And the kid's going to say, that doesn't make sense. And the parent's going to say, worship your God. Worship your God. Number two, that God is who he is means God will never end. If he didn't come into being, then he can't go out of being. God is being. He is absolute being, and there's no place to go outside of being. So, there will always be God. Number three, the God who, the God it, or that God is who he is means God is utterly independent. Utterly, he depends on nothing to bring himself into being. He depends on nothing to support him. He depends on nothing to counsel him. He depends on nothing to make him what he is. He is absolutely independent. Number four, God, the God is who he is means God is constant. God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because God is. He can't be improved upon. He can't be taken away from. God's not becoming something more than he already is. He's never going to lose what he has. There's no development in God. There's no regress in God. Because God is absolute perfection. He is. Number five. That God is who he is means he is the absolute standard. He is the absolute standard of truth, of goodness, of justice, of beauty, Listen, there is no law book that God consults when deciding what is right. There's no almanac he consults to get some facts straight. There's no counsel that he goes to to determine what do you think is excellent and beautiful. God is the standard. It is right because it comes from God. It is beautiful because it comes from God. It is good because it comes from God. God, everything is dependent upon Him. Number six, God is who He is means God does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He, and and it's always right. And it's always beautiful, and it's always in accord with truth. There are no constraints on God from outside. He's not... Constrained by anything that he does not will to exist. And thus he governs what constrains him. All reality that is outside of him is subordinate to God. This means he is utterly free and he is the only being utterly free in all the universe. He is utterly free from any constraint that did not originate from within his own will. Number seven, that God is who he is, means he's the greatest. He's the greatest. He's the most beautiful, the most valuable, and the most important person in existence. 
In fact, he is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all persons and all realities put together. Isaiah 40 verse 17 says, All the nations, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. There is nothing you can compare to God. And then eighth and finally, the one that you don't have on the overhead, that God is who he is means there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in, we are saved by the great I am who took on flesh, who came in scandalous mercy to save sinners. His name, his name in flesh is Jesus and there is salvation in no other name. This is a, just a small picture of who the Lord is. Who the Lord is. He is Yahweh, the great I Am. And this brings us to our next question. Question number two that we need to answer this morning then is, okay, so what is the glory of the Lord? What is the glory? We've seen the Lord, we've seen something about Him, but what is His glory? We talk about it regularly. We see we're supposed to fill the earth with it. What is it? Well, glory, glory is a hard thing to define. Yeah, it's, it's like the word beauty. Okay, we can talk about beauty and point to examples of, of beauty, like you know, that sunset over there is beautiful, or that woman right there. Is beautiful. Everybody was supposed to say amen. We can see beauty, but sometimes it's very hard to say what beauty is. What is it? And glory is like that. We can see glory easier than we can say what glory is. And so for all of you who have had football on the brain this weekend, I have some football for you in this sermon because I love you. And I told first service, I think some of these illustrations, these football illustrations took more time than anything else in my sermon because I largely did not know what I was talking about. Already probably makes you wonder if you should listen to this part, but... We see glory easier than we can say it. And so, illustration, glory is a quarterback standing confidently in the pocket. This is actually something I can't even perceive. Standing confidently in the pocket, scanning the field for an open receiver, gauging the distance, locking in, launching the ball. It's spiraling as it soars. Receiver catches it, dodges a defender, dives into the touchdown. Glory. Glory. It's glorious. What we mean is that it's beautiful. And it may cause you to jump out of your seat or to jump up and down and hug the person next to you. Or it might make you sit there in silence. Or maybe it makes you weep for the beauty of the thing. The glory of it means it's just so obviously beautiful, so manifestly perfect And this is what it's like when we're talking about the glory of the Lord. 
We are spreading the fame, the display. We are showing off the greatness of our God. When His greatness and His beauty and His worth shine forth in Revelation, when they shine forth in the world so that we can admire it and enjoy it, it's often called God's glory. So we see this in Psalm 19.1, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The stars in the sky, the sun shining brightly, the thunderclouds rolling overhead, the warm orange pinks and purples blending together and cascading over the morning sky. They're all communicating to us. They're all telling us wisdom is behind this and power and greatness. Look at me and there's something better than me behind me. Declaring the glory of God. Now, speaking of glory, in Paul's letter to the Romans, in his great exposition of the gospel, he explains how sin begins with the suppression of God's glory. Sin begins with suppression. Though God has revealed to us his invisible attributes, Paul says, namely his eternal power and divine nature through what he has made, through creation. All of creation is declaring things that are manifestly true about God. Creation's declaring it. It's like God is taking our head with both of his hands and he's pointing us to his greatness, to the greatness of his glory. He's saying, look at this, look at this. So you can know me. Look at this. Look at the crab nebula here. Look at the look at these redwoods. Look at them. They're incredible. They're majestic. Look at the stars burning in the sky. He takes our head and he turns us to look at his glory revealed there, but we seeing refuse to see. We seeing refuse to look. We shut the eyes of our heart and we stiffen our neck and we won't look at the glory. Why? Because it obligates us. It demands something of us. Namely, that we would worship God and live in light of who He is. But we don't want to. We don't want to. So Paul says, we take that truth and we suppress it. We push it down. We tamp down the knowledge of the glory of God, but we can't Turn off the craving we have for glory. Right? We can't turn that off because it's coded into us. We're made for it. We're wired for it. As as plants turn to the sun, so we turn to glory constantly. We move towards it. We can't not do this. Which brings us to the next stage of sin. First we suppress it. Then first we suppress the glory of God. Then we substitute it. Can't get rid of it. So we... We trade it out for something, we exchange it, we substitute it. Paul says we substitute the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Chapter 1, verse 19. Then he says we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, verse 25. And here's the thing you have to get. Here's the principle you need to understand that's that's at work here. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. This is a principle taught throughout Scripture. You can see it in Romans 1, verse 23. 
You can see it in Psalm 115 if you want to go study it this week. That's a great passage. Also, Isaiah chapter 44. We become like what we worship. You're going to see it in your own life. The sin struggles you struggle with will affect you. They will change you. So listen, here it is. When we worship the Creator, certain things happen to us. And when we worship the created, other things happen to us. When we worship the Creator, jumping ahead to Romans 12, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We grow up into maturity. Paul says we grow up in wisdom and discernment. We grow up, and here's the thing, there's no top to our growth. Because remember, God, God is infinite. There's no ceiling to him. And so there's no ceiling to our growth in him. It's only onward and upward forever. Yeah. So much so, so much so that when we've been in glory, when we've been in heaven, we've been there for 10,000 years Bright, shining as the sun. None of us are going to be like, hands in the pocket. What do you want to do? There's a lot I don't know about heaven, but I know this. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be glorious. Because it's an infinite up. What is heaven? It's an infinite up into Greater glory. That's what heaven is. An infinite up into greater glory. But when we worship the created, the creature or the created, what happens is we go down. Worship the creator, you're going to go up. Worship the creature or the created, you're going to go down. You're going to degrade. You're going to spiral down. When we worship the creature, we become less and less like what God made us to be. We worship the creator, we become more and more what God made us to be. But we worship the created, we become less and less. So why is our country, why is our country, why is our city the way that it is? Everybody talks about state of our culture today. Why is it the way that it is? Answer, because of what we worship. Because of what we worship. Listen, the reason we live in clown world today and in, you know, an increasingly creepy clown world, uh, we live increasingly in creepy clown world, is because of the idols we worship. We worship clowns, so we become like clowns. We worship creepy clowns, so we become like creepy clowns. We refuse to worship God, and if we're not worshiping the Creator, then we're worshiping the creature, and we become like creatures animals we become less and less what we were made to be the image and the glory of god but the good news of the gospel the good news of the gospel is that we aren't trapped by the tragedy of misplaced glory because the lord of glory the lord of glory which is what both paul and james called jesus the lord of glory has come to rescue and restore us jesus came to redeem us and recapture us for his glory. And so in Romans, continuing in Romans, we read chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and 
in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So Paul is saying here that saving mercy for glory-suppressing and glory-substituting sinners comes through, saving mercy comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus and through the scandal of His cross, where the Lord of glory hung in shame. We saw Him, and we esteemed Him not. And bearing the wrath we deserved, God displayed His righteousness, Romans 3.26, His righteousness so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the scandalous mercy of Jesus that brings us not just into heaven, not just out of hell and into heaven. It brings us back into glory in God. So Paul said that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The mercy of Christ is not an end in itself. Salvation is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. It is a means to getting back to glorifying God as we were made to do, to making much of Him with our lives, to being able to spread the glory of the knowledge or the knowledge of the glory of God throughout the earth and forever and ever. The one we've sinned against saves us so that we can then get back to making much of Him. And this brings us finally to mission. And, and to mission, to spreading that glory, and to answering our third final question. Okay? How do we fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Taking the passage apart, how do we fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? If the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is His manifest perfection on display, then we fill the earth with it in at least two ways. And at least two ways I want to give you. First, by seeking glory. First, by seeking glory. Returning to Romans here for a minute. I've drawn a lot from Romans today. But here's a, here's a question. Maybe a, a passage you've never looked at before. How does Paul describe the one who is justified by faith? What's that person like? What's a Christ, what is someone like who trusts in Jesus for salvation? He says they're glory seekers. They're glory. So, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 God will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience, in well doing, seek for glory. Again, those who by patience, in well-doing, in doing good, in, in doing well, seek for glory and honor and immortality, to them he will give eternal life. So, you've got to see this, what this passage is saying here. God does not oppose glory-seeking. He commends it. So long as... You're pursuing His glory out of it. 
All right, let me show you this to you another place. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, right? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Don't have it on the overhead because most of you have it memorized, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here we have another passage telling us to seek glory, do all to their glory, and we're to do so, Paul is saying, this is my paraphrase, even at Chick-fil-A, down to the very last French fry. Okay, that's what Paul is saying here. Down to the bottom of the box, and down to the last of the Chick-fil-A sauce. Paul says, whatever, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul starts with the seemingly insignificant. Whether you order a salad or a burger, whether you pour another glass of wine or decide it's time to switch to water. Paul is saying, even down to the very last french fry, you're to do all to the glory of God. And if that's the case, in the quote-unquote insignificant things, like what you eat or drink, the lesser things, then how much more is it the case, this is his argument, how much more is it the case in the significant things like parenting and working and serving and ultimately in proclaiming the gospel and building Christ's church. How much more should we aim at glorifying God in those things? Do all things for the glory of God. Do all things for the glory of God. Okay, so what does that mean though? What does it mean to do all things for the glory of God? Well, it means honoring his perfection by being as perfect as you can. All under grace, right? No, but but I said it a few weeks ago, I think, with you know, no gun to your head, but it's being as perfect as you can. It means doing all for the glory of God means lining up with his will and his attributes and his character as best as you can. Okay? You want to line up with his will, line up with his characteristic as best as you can. Listen, don't miss this part, so as to get notice. To be noticed. So that you can show forth his worth. It's you doing things and you acting in such a way that you want people to notice. Now that, that might sound dangerous to you. Because I think we, we've gotten it in our heads that humility looks like not being noticed. Right? The humble thing is to not get noticed. But, but you're the light of the world, Jesus says. You're supposed to get noticed. You're supposed to stick out. You're supposed to, you're supposed to be noticed. It's not a good thing if you've been working somewhere for two years and people haven't noticed you. Because then you're not a light. Or you can't be a light. Doing the glory of all to the glory of God means doing your best. It means trying to get that promotion. It means trying to be the best parent you can be. It means being the best worker you can be, the best neighbor you can be. Trying to excel in conduct and in character. All the while being a servant, being kind, being respectful, being generous. So that 
people take note so that they notice and then you can point them to the only one worth all the praise. You get, you seek glory so that you can use it as a platform to point to true glory. And so we get this sometimes in the sports world where I, yeah, CJ Stroud, who I you know, didn't know this morning when I showed this the first service that he was apparently you know, part of the demise of the Browns last night. So sorry for, you know, here I thought I was serving you and I'm actually distracting some of you. This is what I get when I try to do a sports thing. But nonetheless, they, I was told this was actually helpful in the end. So I'll still share it with you. CJ Stroud, NFL rookie, set multiple rookie and playoff records en route to leading the Texans to their first division title, playoff victory since 2019. And in interview after interview, this, this made it even onto my Twitter feed, in interview after interview, you will hear him saying things just like this. First thing, they, they'll ask him whatever question, they'll ask him a question, and he'll say, first and foremost, I've got to give all glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, that's living to the glory of God. Stroud did his best. He worked his hardest. He lived honorably so he could get that platform and say, to God be the glory. See, he got glory from others, but he didn't keep the glory. He pointed it on. He pointed it where it really belonged. He used the glory that he got as a platform for God's glory, as an opportunity to point to God's glory. And this brings us, I think, to something very important that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation that, that we need to hold on to, which is the breaking down of the divide between the secular and the sacred. The breaking down of the divide between the secular and the sacred. It was actually a key part of the Reformation. So in medieval times, in the medieval period, if you wanted to be a sold-out Christian, if you wanted to be hot for Jesus, you had, you know, here are your options. Become a priest, become a monk, become a nun. Right? Those are, sold out for Jesus? Great. Here's what you can do. Become a priest, become a monk, become a nun. And we see something of that same kind of thinking in modern evangelicalism where being sold out for Jesus means, we think, that you have to go into ministry. You have to go to full-time ministry. You have to be a pastor. You have to be a missionary. You have to work for a ministry. But what the Reformers recovered is the idea of serving Jesus full-time as a lawyer. Serving him full-time as an engineer, as a homemaker, as an artist, as a politician, as a construction worker. You were put into this world, and God put you, gave you gifts and interests, abilities, and he got saved, and he gave you more of them, so that you could glorify him with whatever you touch. So that you could glorify him by glorifying whatever you touch. That's the mission. You're to glorify what you touch. Don't corrupt it. Don't use it for your own vainglory. But the mission is, do your best, whatsoever you do, whether you write or sculpt or paint, whether you sell, construct, or design, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do your best. Be your best. 
Live your best, live honorably, live humbly, so that with every opportunity you get, you can point to God. You can boast in God. You can declare God's glory. Here's the idea. If you want to see a harvest of glory, a rich harvest of glory to God sprouting up all over Akron, then you've got to understand the good works God has prepared beforehand for you to do, they are all little glory seeds. That's what they are. All those good works are glory seeds. And your mission is to plant as many of them as you can. Water them, wait, and watch them grow. This is true of every Christian, not just pastor and missionary, but every Christian has good works appointed for him to do, and that good work might be diligently pouring over spreadsheets to the glory of God. It might be investing in a startup to the glory of God. It might be you know, making a boatload of money that you can turn around and give away you know, to our multiply fund for the glory of God or missionaries or other ministries or whatever. It might be working on cars as a mechanic with integrity to the glory of God. Okay, let me just make one other point here with this. How is sin described in Scripture? How is, in Romans 3, verse 23, Romans 3, 23, what is sin described as? Falling short of the glory of God, right? Sin is falling short, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is sinful to fall short of glory. Many Christians have gotten into their heads that it's sinful to pursue glory, when in fact, it's sinful to refuse to pursue glory. It's the falling short of glory that is sin. Sin is falling short of doing things for the glory of God. And this is one of the great problems that I think plagues American evangelicalism. And I would humbly put out for us, as we're 40 years old now as a church, and we're thinking about the next 40 years, I think this is one of the things that plagues our church as well. We are not ambitious enough. We are not glory hungry enough. I think we're like Lewis says. We're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. Listen, if we have an indescribably glorious God, and if we are as sinfully lost people, but we have a scandalously merciful Savior, then surely our God warrants more than casual church attendance, mediocre work in your workplace, right? A wispy witness in the world, flimsy, thin. No, our glorious God is worthy of our all. So we lay everything we have on the table. We lay it all before him, all our plans and all our possessions, all our skills and all our successes. And we say to him, God, use it all. Use my life. 
Use my family. Use my job. Use everything I have. Use everything I am for the spread of your glory. That's what I want the next 40 years of Covenant of Grace to be all about. Give it all for the glory of God. So we need to seek glory, and then very quickly I have to give us... Holy smokers. That's not very pastoral thing. Holy smokers? What does that even mean? There was holy smoke with the temple. Did I get it from that? I don't know. Yeah, so we're seeking the glory, but then the second thing, and I'll have to do this quickly, but share the glory. Seek the glory, share the glory. What glory? What do you mean share the glory, Jace? Well, I'm talking, if we're filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, how do we do this? Well, we seek the glory, but we also share the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as it is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. We share Jesus. That's what all those glory opportunities lead to. Opportunities to share Jesus. And we already saw in Romans 1 that everyone has a knowledge of God. Everyone, you go, creation has revealed God. His glory and that we are guilty. Which is to say, everyone has enough knowledge to be damned. To be held accountable and to be damned for their suppression and substitution of the glory of God. Everybody has that much knowledge of God. And as we seek to feel the weight of the glory of God and the weight of the opportunity that is right outside these doors and in these doors to spread the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As we feel the weight of all that, we should also let it press us into feeling the weight of the lostness of those who only have enough knowledge of God to show them that they are lost and nothing more. Tens and tens of thousands of people like all around us. I'm not talking about way over there. We're talking about right here. Who have just enough knowledge of God to be condemned forever. Will you let that truth penetrate your heart? But there's good news. There's good news. And it's that the gospel of Jesus is powerful enough to save. The gospel of a scandalously merciful Savior is good news for every lost person in Akron. And we know this gospel works. It wor- How do we know it works? You are how I know it works. And I'm how I know it works. It worked on us. It saved uh, even us. And
And if it can save us, then friends, it is powerful to save. Now, that being said, I should just say this. When it comes to the saving, we don't save people. Right? We share the gospel. We don't save people. God saves people. Which means we usually have to tell people again and again and again and again and again and trust that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's up to him to open the eyes of their heart to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saving them is his job. Our job is sharing and sharing and sharing and sharing and sharing and sharing. Sharing Jesus with them and sharing him confidently knowing he has the power to save them. And that's all they need. So, in conclusion, and wrapping this all up, friends, this is the mission. To fan out across Akron, and then on out across the world, seeking the glory of God, and sharing the glory of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to achieve anything close to our vision for the mission, right, the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, if we're going to achieve anything close to that vision for the mission, then we're going to have to stir up in each of us a deeper hunger for glory. For glory. A zealous ambition for God's glory. So, let's end on that. Why do we want people to come to Christ in Akron? Why do we want our friends and our family to know God savingly? Why do we want to save up for and invest in a larger building so that we can enlarge our mission and our ministry in this city and from here around? Why do we want to do Why not just stay what we are? We're very happy like this. Why not just stay like this? Here's the ultimate answer. Why? Because the choir is not big enough. We need more basses. We need more tenors. We need more musicians. The choir's not big enough. What choir, Jace? You want to get a choir up on this stage? You don't think we have a... I'm not talking about the stage of this church. I am talking about the stage of heaven, which is the new earth, where there is a choir. That's the choir we're building. A choir singing the praises of our great and glorious God. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the choir we want to see get bigger. That's the choir we want to add to. And that's what the mission of this church and the mission of your life is ultimately all about. Because God is worthy and He is glorious. And He is.
Will you pray with me? God in heaven, it's I confess it's a fearful thing to preach about your glory. It's a strange thing because I I am just convicted as I preach of how much I fall short of your glory in my attempts to preach about it. But, but, I try. And we try for your glory, Lord. We want to seek your glory. We want to share the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would help take the teachings of your word today and you would seal them in our hearts. That you would shape our minds and our hearts and our lives and you would shape the next 40 years of this church and beyond to be one zealous pursuit to spread the knowledge of the glory of our Lord across the face of this earth as the sea covers the ocean. Oh God, help us to do that. Help us to realign our lives. Help to stir our souls. God, we need you. We need you. Oh God, we need you. And I'm so glad to know that promise you gave to Moses is a promise you give to us through all this. I will be with you. We're counting on that. And so we pray in the one who brought us to you in his great name, and the one who sealed us with you in his great name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.